Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Welcome to Beyond the Box. This is Steve Sensenig uh, without my buddy Ray this time. Um, it's my chance to do an interview and to uh, have to do these bumpers all by myself. And Ray, I can tell already how difficult this is to do a bumper by myself. But anyway, I want to welcome you all to Beyond the Box. Um, I have a special interview for you today. As you may recall, uh, back about the time that Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, came out, uh, which has been over a year ago now, uh, we did a bunch of podcasts about that book and about the subject of ultimate reconciliation or Christian universalism or whatever you want to call it uh, at the time. And uh, I decided to interview Robin Perry, who some may know under the name Gregory McDonald. He was the author of The Evangelical Universalist. And uh, since then, he has uh, revealed that it was he who wrote the book. Um, And he's written some other books, too, that have been very influential in evangelicalism. Um, But I wanted to talk to Robin not specifically about universalism in terms of defending it or even really defining it, uh, but what the impact of his book and other discussions, such as Rob Bell's book, have had in evangelicalism with regard to the subject of universalism or ultimate reconciliation. This is a a topic that a lot of times for people um, seems to be a no-brainer, that uh, it's just heresy, plain and simple, and there's no way that everybody's going to be saved in the end, that some people have to go to hell in order for God to be God. And uh, and so a lot of times that subject in that conversation just gets shut down. But I wanted to talk to Robin specifically about uh, the response to his book and to other books like it, and also to just discuss with him where he thinks that this subject of ultimate reconciliation is going uh, with regard to evangelicalism as a subgroup of Christianity and uh, with regard to Christianity as a whole. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to go into the interview here with Robin, and I hope you guys enjoy it here on Beyond the Box. Robin Perry is coming to us via Skype in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, Where exactly are you, Robin? You're in Worcestershire? Yes, I live in Worcester, the city itself. Oh, okay, great. Um, Robin has uh, written uh, several books, but uh, one in particular that grabbed my interest uh, last year, and that is The Evangelical Universalist. And I understand, Robin, actually you just released the second edition of that, is that correct? Yeah, it came in the States a few weeks back, and great. the British edition should be out soon. 
Fantastic. I'm going to get that on my Kindle and start reading it. Uh, so you have some, $9.99. I'll take it. <laughs> That's a great deal. Uh, you have some interesting new appendices in there dealing with uh, Rob Bell's take on universalism and uh, some other uh, very interesting topics related to it generally. Uh, we have dealt with the subject of Christian universalism, or as we call it, uh, ultimate reconciliation, on this podcast uh, quite a bit in the past. And... Uh, so we don't really need to rehash a definition per se, or or really a defense, I should say, of uh, that topic, because we've already dealt with that quite thoroughly, and a lot of that based actually on your book, which I appreciate uh, you giving us that material very much uh, for use in the body of Christ. Um, but I would like to have you, Robin, uh, first of all, tell us just a little bit briefly about yourself, your your bio, so to speak, and uh, then also give us just a, a kind of a brief definition of what you mean when you use the term Christian universalism, because I know the term universalism can be very misleading to some people. Um, <clears throat> well, I was born in Liverpool in England, and I uh, moved to Wales when I was 10. I wasn't born as a Christian, but I became a Christian just before I was 15 through some mm-hmm. friends at school. Uh, this was joined an evangelical club and uh, then went on to do theology and there met the woman who was to become my wife. Mm. I taught for uh, 10 years in a 16 to 19-year-old institution, uh, teaching philosophy and religion. And a few other things as well, but that was mm-hmm. the most of it. Uh, I took an Old Testament for my PhD and MA. And, uh, oh, then I got into publishing. Uh, I worked for Paternoster, mm-hmm. and I did about nine years there. Right. And then I moved to Wittgenstock. Okay, and you were with Paternoster when you wrote Evangelical Universalist, is that correct? Yeah. And uh, at the time that you wrote that, I guess partly to uh, maybe spare your publisher some grief, <laughs> you uh, wrote under a pseudonym. Uh, were, were there any other major reasons that, that drove the decision to write under a different name? Well, that was the main reason. Um, it was primarily to preserve the reputation of Paternoster. Mm-hmm. Um, just in case people thought, well, if the guy who's running it is is dubious views all the books will be dubious and and of course (laughs) it wasn't the case you know the books weren't there to reflect exactly what i thought about everything you mean Um, evangelicals actually dive into guilt by association (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so there was that there was also another book written on making worship more trinitarian and Mm -hmm. that was being quite influential in some quarters some quite conservative evangelical quarters and you know for me that book was a really important book and I didn't want that book to be shot down in flames by the very people uh, it was helping just gotcha. because it was guilty by association. Sure, sure, that makes perfect sense. And how long was it after you wrote uh, Evangelical Universalist before you revealed that it was actually you that wrote it? Uh, well, gosh, I, I'd have to check the, in the second edition. I think it was about half years or something. Oh, okay. I was just curious. <laughs> it's not really uh, that germane to the... To the and and uh, partly that was because it appeared to me that the the reaction to it was not quite as ferocious, well, not anything like as ferocious as I had imagined it would be. Sure. And, and so by the time I revealed my identity, I made the judgment, which may or may not have been correct, 
<laughs> that evangelicalism cope with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that I had previously thought it might not be able to. Right. And I want to talk about that a little bit more in depth here in a second. But uh, again, briefly, if you could just uh, tell us what you mean by the term Christian universalism. And as a corollary to that, I'd be curious to know why you've chosen to use the term universalism with all of its uh, potential baggage as opposed to, say, ultimate reconciliation. (laughs) Um, By Christian universalism, I simply mean the view that in the end, God will reconcile all people to himself through Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I distinguish that from various kinds of universalism. Uh, For example, the one that concerns most Christians when they hear the word universalism is pluralism right uh, often people assume that's what you're talking about mm-hmm. um and so this is the view that well, there's many different ways to be right with god or reconciled with god and jesus is one but there are just as many of and mm-hmm. and so in this way you know you relate to christ doesn't become necessary he's like optional and so on and this is it's a theologically very problematic view but sure. that's not at all what i mean uh, so, in my view, it's specifically and only through Christ that God brings about this reconciliation of creation. Great. Yeah. I, this is a, a topic that obviously, uh, as you know, still is extremely controversial. Um, and uh, it, it was a, a hard jump for me to make to uh, ultimate reconciliation because I had just been so ingrained in my childhood. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home, an evangelical Christian home, and um, had been so ingrained with the notion that, that there was ultimate uh, eternal torment for those who did not try, trust Christ, and the notion that God would dare to save everyone ultimately in the end was uh, somehow anathema to <laughs> a yeah. lot of people, And uh, which now I, I pose the question, why are people so afraid of a God who uh, dares to save everybody in the end, who ultimately does win out uh, with his love in the end. Um, You mentioned the reaction in evangelicalism, and this is what I'm curious about, because uh, I I would have expected a much more uh, negative reaction as well to this topic when I first began considering it. And I've actually been surprised at how many people within uh, evangelicalism as a subset of Christianity and, and in Christianity at large uh, are at least open to the discussion about it um, as opposed to vehemently opposed to it. And uh, I want to get your take on why you think that is becoming more acceptable and where do you, uh, and I'm trying not to put you on a pedestal as a prophet here because it's not really <laughs> <laughs> the point, but but just in, in your experience and in your line of work, where do you think this is headed in terms of evangelicalism as a whole? Yeah, that's good questions. Um, <clears throat> well, my, my, whole, my perceptions of the situation are partly affected by the fact that I'm in the UK and I'm I have some familiarity with the American scene, but I've never actually inhabited it. Mm-hmm. And so, Shame on you. So things are slightly different here than there. But like you, uh, it was just a given for me when right. I was uh, growing up. Even well, I was when I became evangelical, and then mm-hmm. uh, indwelt that way of being Christian. Uh, it was <laughs> just taken as read that universalism was wrong. 
I mean, that was like mm. a starting point for any discussion. And Exactly. It just shut it down completely. <laughs> yeah. And we knew all sorts of reasons why that was. You know, it's because, right. well, Jesus is the only way. You know? Right. Exactly. Or, are you saying it doesn't matter if we sin or, you know, a, a whole bunch yeah. of things like this. And so for me, when I started analyzing over the, the question of hell, and, and it was free will and human mm. freedom and divine providence that was the issue that got, got me thinking. Oh, okay. um, you know, it, and, and in particular, the idea that uh, it, it seemed to me, and I still think this is the case, that God could have saved everyone without violating their freedom. And, right. and so I was sort of thinking, well, why doesn't he? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, because, but because it was, see, it was non-negotiable for me that he doesn't. I mean, right. So that that was just not even up for discussion. So the question is, why doesn't he? And I, and that's mm-hmm. what was creating all the tension. Um, mm. Now, you know, and I, and I, and in discussions with many evangelicals, that has been the case for them too. You know, that right. this is just not even on the table for a discussion, but. Partly that was because some of the universalists that we had encountered when we come across it theologically were people like John Hick uh-huh. and so on, who were pluralists. Right. You know, the kind of universalists when we encountered it were not, not the kind of what I call evangelical universalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the reasons for the change is simply that uh, a more overtly Christian version of universalism has been articulated by various people and once and simply even explaining I think what it is that this view does and doesn't mean mm-hmm. has gone a long way to making it um, not poisonous for people that's a great and point let again me jump in again there real quick if you don't mind uh, because I, I think this is so critical to discussions in evangelicalism that we have to at least take the time to define what it is we're talking about to to make it clear what the parameters are in the discussion because you know like you said you mentioned christian universalism people immediately assume or jump to pluralism and yes. and so the discussion just shuts down again with that non-negotiable that well god has to send people to hell and so you know obviously that's true so therefore this can't be and if we just would take the time to say look I'm not saying X, Y, and C. I'm really just saying A, B, and C, and I can show you that in Scripture, and I can play that out. One of the things that really impressed me with the Evangelical Universalist is that it wasn't just a 30-page pamphlet. You really took the time in great detail to spell out the case for Christian universalism. Um, So sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to make that that point a little bit bigger, that uh, it's very important to have that discussion with a a level head <laughs> to say, you know, here's what I'm really trying to say. Please listen to this and, and hear the argument out. Yeah, I, I and I think that's right. I, I published an article recently in Evangelical Quarterly called um, "Evangelical Universalism Oxymoron?" Question <laughs> mark. And um, and and basically, I what I tried to do there is simply I was not trying to argue that evangelical universalism was true, but simply that right that it wasn't an oxymoron. In other words, right. even if it's wrong, it's still a legitimate evangelical position. And I outlined various reasons why people would think it wasn't and explained that actually um, right. it doesn't fall foul of those. And more than that, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's not been received in such a hostile way, is because I think it actually arises 
it's not about taking the gospel and then trying to squeeze the gospel to fit the spirit of the age, which is what right. was the yes. worry. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, almost the opposite. Um, for me, it's the impulse or the drive towards universalism arises from reflection on the very gospel itself, on yes. what it is, uh, who is the God of the gospel, and right. what is what is the way and the plan and purposes of God as revealed in, in Christ, in mm-hmm. the incarnation, ministry, death, resurrection, and so on. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's precisely out of reflecting on the gospel that hell becomes, in the traditional understanding, becomes problematic. Yes. Um, and so, you know, lots of people, e- even those many, most, I feel, of those who would reject universalism have been able to see that actually the drive towards it has some Christian impetus mm-hmm, behind mm-hmm. it. I mean, Christian theological motivation and not simply a motivation to be nice to people. Sure, absolutely. That's a great way to put it, too. And, and so you you see that as what's driving the um, perhaps current increase in acceptance or tolerance, at least? I, I think, people. yeah, I mean, I think a large part of it has been simply several people um, and increasingly people, a number of people who are being able to say, well, not quite sure what I think of it yet, but Right. Actually, it's not saying this, this, this. It's saying this, this, and the other. Um, yeah. And once you see that, a whole, a whole bunch. I mean, maybe even most of the objections, the theological objections against it, um, just drop away because you think, mm-hmm. well, it's not actually saying Jesus doesn't matter, or it doesn't it? Is not actually saying that right. Jesus is sin. It's not actually saying that mission doesn't matter or isn't important, or that God is just nice and never punishes anyone, or that sin isn't that bad. It's not saying any of that stuff. Exactly. In fact, quite the opposite in some cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Jesus Um, is incredibly central to the story of of Christian universalism. And once that, I mean, there was a very recently a Christian scholars conference uh, in which there was a debate between a traditionalist, a universalist, and Edward Fudge, who's an annihilationist. (laughs) And um, sounds like Ed, the start of a joke. <laughs> Ed, yeah, it was. A, I wasn't there, but um, Edward sent me his reply that he made to Thomas Talbot and to Jerry Walls, mm-hmm. who was a universalist and the traditionalist. Although Jerry's not, he's an Arminian traditionalist of a sort of C.S. Lewis, Lewisian, Lewisian kind. Anyway, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it was really interesting because he. Edward said that uh, you know you can that the evangelical discussion now has enlarged um, uh, so that it's uh, now a conversation that includes three voices instead of two. Mm. Uh, you know, and although he doesn't think universalism is right, he's very clear mm-hmm. that um, while it's wrong, it is an evangelical view, and he's very generous and open-hearted in the way that he tries to understand it for what it is and isn't mm-hmm. saying, and that he's happy to have it within the fold, even though he thinks it's wrong. And we'll argue sure, that sure. it's Sure, Yeah. And that's, a, I mean, I think that marks a great shift because I've come across that Absolutely. reaction so often. The people mm-hmm. who say, you know, I do think you're wrong, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think that, that what's at stake are the issues of huge theological import that we took them to be. Yeah, because when you when people misunderstand us as uh, redefining God or even worse, uh, making God smaller, then that kind of tends to freak them out. But rightly so. 
Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we all should react against that. But, you know, I guess in my mind, uh, to use that same language, it it actually made God bigger in my theology when I embraced ultimate reconciliation. Because now I saw him as not only capable of doing something, but actually doing it. Yes. And fulfilling what he set out to do. You know, I, Rob Bell took a lot of heat for his writing. And, and I have to say, there are things about Rob's style that I, I don't necessarily like, uh, even if I agree with most of what he says. He, he tends to be uh, maybe a little bit too provocative at times for uh, impact's sake. But one of the, the questions that's central to, to the book that he wrote last year uh, is basically, does God fail in his mission to save all of humanity? Does uh-huh. Does he set out to do something and not succeed? Because by any stretch or measuring tape, the typical evangelical view, whether it's uh, eternal conscious torment or annihilation, is a God who ends up with a very small percentage, and some love to make it as small as possible, of of people whom he actually is able to redeem. And so to me, if we step back and look at it, that makes for a much smaller God than a view yes. of a God who is able to save everyone and who actually does save everyone ultimately in the end. Yeah, there was an 18th century Baptist minister who I've uh, written about in the past called Elhanan Winchester. And uh, this is one of the arguments he makes. You know, He says mm-hmm. we're accused of belittling the cross and we're accused. Yes. <laughs> and he says, but how, how is it belittling the cross to say that actually it's so awful <laughs> that, right. it, that it brings about you know that it god actually says for whom christ died and yeah. that's everyone uh how is that belittling <laughs> christ or the cross or you know right and god and, and you know he he sort of sets it up so that you're for him it's a choice between arminism calvinism and universalism and he's very generous oh, wow. about yeah. calvinism and arminianism uh, but he really <laughs> thinks that in the end you know what so what kind of god do you want do you want the one who can't bring about his purposes or the one whose purposes are less than fully loving or do you want the one who's got <laughs> loving purposes and succeeds <laughs> that, that's a great way to characterize all three of those viewpoints isn't it uh you know I, i've already gotten way off of my uh scripted questions here robin because i'm just enjoying this conversation so much but uh do you see then and i think i know the answer to this this trend increasing that there will be even more room at the table for christian universalism in evangelical discussions i, I think Yes, I do. I mean, I think it, it, things could go in several directions, and not all of them necessarily good. I, I don't see anything inherently virtuous about broadening evangelicalism for mm. for, for its own sake. I mean, broadening something right. for its own sake has yeah. no interest to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and but I think it will. I think it will broaden in different directions, and so you will see different kinds of evangelical universalism some perhaps less evangelical i think mm-hmm. some people will a bit in exclusivist directions by which i mean and this is the view i did in my book that salvation mm-hmm. is only through christ but also it's through explicit faith in christ and so mm-hmm. i argue in the book that some people come to explicit faith in christ after death right um n- now, other, the the other view, inclusivism, is that salvation is only through Christ, and this is Rob Bell's view, only mm-hmm. through Christ, but it's possible to 
be saved through Christ, even if maybe you haven't heard of Christ. Uh, Which would actually you know, fit with C.S. Lewis's view, if I understand. Yeah, his yeah. In the I mean, last it's battle. not mm-hmm. not an uncommon view, and right. You know, both, both of these views have merits, and I'm not particularly committed to one as a the other. I'm. Right. slightly inclined towards exclusivism but I'm open to inclusivism yeah. Yeah. and I think you will see both kinds developing but I think you will mm-hmm. also see more liberal versions developing and more you know, some, some that I think would probably be quite unhelpful and I, uh-huh. I would want to distance myself from I think, I mean sure. I have seen um, some in some universe, Christian Universalist forums um, Unitarianism sort of rears its uh-huh. head right. from time to time and with this I have no sympathy I mean well <laughs> I can understand it okay I have sympathy and that I can understand why people would do this for you but I think right, it's, a real, sure. it's a dead end road for Christian theology that, that the church well, yeah. is like rejected and, and and as I understand it, it pretty much is uh, uh, stereotypical pluralism I mean it it just doesn't want to rule anything out well you know you get some fair some people who, in many ways, would be pretty close to fundamentalist evangelical Christians, save that they are Unitarians. And, uh-huh. and strangely enough, in the history of recent or modern Unitarianism from the uh, 17th century, much of it, all of it, was from people who, in many respects, were pretty biblicist. You know, they just hmm. this is what Scripture taught. So I again yeah. sympathise with that. I just have a slightly different understanding. Well. I think that's not what Scripture teaches, and I also give more uh, space to the importance of tradition in the interpretation of Scripture, which I know some people think is sounds fine coming from me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but but I, I do. I, tradition is very important when reading Scripture. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and as you and I would understand it, uh, universalism or Christian universalism does not uh, at all preclude tradition in history. That there. Uh, as we can see, have been threads of of Christians all along who have understood that. Um, I, I don't think history is at all against us on that. No, no. I mean, I think the tradition closed down somewhat on the question of universalism. Uh, right. And, you know, for for some while, and, and still to quite some extent. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, evangelicalism is a funny beast within the broader church. I mean, within orthodoxy, yes. um, universalism is perfectly okay as a personal opinion, though never a dogma or the official teaching of the church. And in Catholicism, yeah. it's okay uh, so long as you don't say that God will really do this, that he might. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I, I definitely go further than that. I, I sure. don't know why the Catholic, those Catholics who are universities feel the need mm-hmm. restrain themselves in that way, but I don't mind that they do. <laughs> yeah, sure, it's understandable. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's interesting. My co-host Rayburn and I uh, have discussed this subject many, many times, and, and oftentimes we find ourselves actually uh, questioning to what extent we can still call ourselves evangelicals um, because there's, there is a, at least here in the United States, I, mean, I can't speak for the UK, but here in the United States, evangelicalism does uh, appear to in some ways be fracturing some um, and, and some, div- 
strong dividing lines being drawn. Uh, for example, on this topic, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention went so mm-hmm. far as to issue a resolution saying, you know, we absolutely denounce Rob Bell's book, and yes, there is eternal conscious torment, yeah. and we know the truth, <laughs> and, um, which I found extremely saddening, uh, to put it mildly. Um, but also be, from the standpoint of just wondering where do we fit in you know we we have asked a lot of questions about uh, church structure and and you know what we refer to as institutional church our podcast is called beyond the box because we tend to think as far outside the box as we possibly can and and see what we can get away with you know uh-huh. um and and yet evangelicalism still is the label that i find myself the closest to if i have to take on any label and so i, I find this whole discussion somewhat personally challenging because I don't know that I'm ready to completely give up the label. And yet at the same time, I wonder how long can I continue to call myself an evangelical and begin to believe more and more things that seem to be outside of evangelicalism. But you, you give me hope in that regard because I mean, the very title of your book has, has given me hope that maybe it is possible to continue to have evangelical and universalist. Well, yeah, I, I, and I think, so, I mean, and the title mm-hmm. you said, why do I universalism earlier rather than mm-hmm. universal sure. restoration or reconciliation? I mean, that's a good question. And I would be very happy to use universal reconciliation or restoration, and I do. But universalism uh-huh. is more provocative. And if you, <laughs> oh, you if too, you huh? <laughs> evangelical, you'll get people who might otherwise have ignored the book thinking, what? <laughs> we got to... Well, we gotta have a go at this. And it's so pretty I'm obvious you work in the publishing industry. <laughs> so I was I was looking to slightly get people to go uh, by using that. Uh, but you know, I think well, why? Okay, why shouldn't I use the term evangelical for two reasons? Right. Uh, one, that this is a theology which is fully consistent with, in fact, grows out of the evangel namely the gospel, which is, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's evangelical in the true sense in that it's Mm -hmm. gospel-focused. And secondly, it has a high view of scripture, which is one of the key defining marks of historic evangelicalism. And we we say that we're always reforming and always Mm -hmm. uh, open Mm -hmm. by scripture. So, you know, if that's what we say, then we have to be open to being corrected on these things. By scripture, especially. Yeah. And and what is about, even if it's the case that, and what I argue in my chapter, on my article on evangelical universalism, is even if it's the case that almost all evangelicals happen to have been um, universalists, mm-hmm. I argue that this isn't become because of the inherent logic of their fundamental evangelical convictions. Uh, it's because of various misunderstandings about universalism is or various views you know right. it's right that, that in fact the <laughs> fundamental evangelical convictions are the things that make you evangelical or not on those mm-hmm. things uh universalists are the same so yeah sure sure so in a sense you're you're not only um helping to clear up confusion about universalism by making it very christ-centered but you're also, in a sense, uh, I don't know if this is going too far in saying it this way, but you're almost reclaiming the term evangelical. I'm not sure I do the word reclaiming. Um, I'm wanting to, I guess I'm wanting to focus people on, again, like many things are, so 
what do we mean when we say evangelical? Right, yeah. And we might mean a bunch of stuff. I mean, some people have much more narrow understandings of it. But, you know, in, when you start to narrow things down like that, you're excluding a whole bunch of people everybody's always thought of as evangelical. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, you have to be, oh, for, just as a for instance, uh, uh-huh. I mean, I always find it amusing that uh, the Evangelical Theological Society, with its minimalist basis of faith, has a right. basis of faith that excludes um, Howard Marshall from being an evangelical, and he's one of the great pillars of uh. the British evangelical <laughs> right. academic establishment, and yet he falls foul of it too. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't take much to eliminate people sometimes if you draw the right boundaries, right? Right, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so you know, I just wanted to say, well, let's be a, a little bit more, you know, whether people are persuaded, Sure. well, that's their sure. problem. I mean, I, you know, and if people think I'm not an evangelical, to be honest, mm-hmm. I really don't mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not the point. I, and I get that. That's a great way to, to put that. Um, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit. I mentioned to you uh, in a Facebook message uh, some directions that I wanted to go with this. And one of the things that I have found in my journey, and uh, you mentioned that free will was sort of the subject that got you uh, thinking in terms of Christian universalism. Um, I have found that often there is a domino effect in our theology. When we experience a shift in one area, it seems to suddenly have huge impacts on other areas of our theology. Um, in my case, the move toward universalism uh, caused me to to really rethink my whole image of God uh, as Father mm-hmm. and uh, to see a lot of, of um, power in the metaphor that Jesus drew between us as earthly fathers and uh, our Heavenly Father as Father. And he says, basically, you as earthly fathers know how to to treat your children right. How much more does your earth, your heavenly father know how to give good gifts and, and treat you right? I'm heavily paraphrasing, of course. Um, and, and in that sense, I suddenly realized how I would want to treat my children. Yes. I think is, you're about it is given to us. Yeah, it has given us a sense of... Mm-hmm understanding of God as Father, that's part of the revelation of Father, is allowing us to have children. And so that that had a huge impact on how I saw God as Father. And, you know, one thing starts to lead to another, and next thing you know, you're rethinking this and that. And my question for you is, as a result of your move to universalism, what have you seen then change in your theology as a result of that? <laughs> And you asked this question in the uh, Facebook messages. <laughs> I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I really can't think of anything. But that, that, was, that was actually quite enlightening because it helped me to get clear precisely how I things are interconnected. Because you're quite right mm-hmm. in saying that you know every area of our theology is it's like a web, and if you start twinging around one bit, it has implications for the whole the rest of the web um, right. and so you know universal does have implications for you know your theology of creation and covenant mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. cross you know, incarnation resurrection ascension and so on uh divine punishment and wrath and all of this mm-hmm. kind of stuff yes. and i guess partly 
you say what changes the result of becoming universalist, but for me, it was never like, right, I'm going to change this part of my theology. Yes, right. I'm going to become a universalist, but now what's going to change in the fit? I mean, I guess the whole thing was time, because it took me, I was thinking about it pretty much non-stop for a couple of years, just trying to figure out in my own head what I thought about it. Mm-hmm. Not with a view to publishing anything, just seeking clarification for myself. Right. And and so as I'm doing it, these things are going back and forth all the time between all of these different areas and to get mm-hmm. some clarity on what this bit means and how does it affect the other and, and so on. But yeah. one of the things when I saw your question earlier this morning and tried to think, yeah, what changed in the rest of my theology, um, is I realized that in fact it was almost the other way around. The rest of my theology was very beliefs I had about God and the nature of God, um, about Christ dying for everyone and God's right. ability to bring about his purpose and all sorts of beliefs I had in all areas of my theology. And it was precisely those things that made hell, or traditionally understood, problematic because mm-hmm. hell, traditionally understood, didn't fit my theology. It, didn't, it, it, it fitted a bit, but it was like the wrong right. shape. The wrong right. shape. And so... In a sense, embracing universalism was, for me, uh, the rest of my theology was already heading that direction. I just couldn't see it because it, sure, it was sure. not even conceivable. But once I could conceive it as a possibility, it seemed like a jigsaw piece. That, oh, that, that yes. actually fits the jigsaw I've got. It fits right. the traditional Christian theology I have about God's you know, nature mm-hmm. and purposes and plans of creation and redemption in a way that the traditional view of hell doesn't. So it's yes. not, and of course, I mean, it leads to refining things. So, you know, my understanding of divine wrath and judgment, mm-hmm. and so on, has been refined yes. uh, in the light of that. But it had no new elements have been introduced, strangely mm-hmm. enough. And I don't think I'd even realized that until <laughs> you asked me that. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, we come at it, uh, each of us in our, on our own journey, come at it in, in different angles and, and uh, through different paths. And, uh, yeah, in my case, ultimate reconciliation caused me to rethink uh, the atonement and what actually happened on the cross and, mm-hmm. and uh, the notion that, because I have found especially that those who embrace eternal conscious torment are completely comfortable saying that God, beat the crap out of his son on the cross. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, once I began to look at ultimate reconciliation and I saw God loving all of humanity with the same amount of undying, no pun intended, <laughs> love, um, then I, I had a lot of trouble seeing him pouring out uh, abuse upon his own son. And so it, it began to reshape how I saw the relationship of the cross to our salvation and to um, uh, uh, what that meant about the father, you know, because the the notion that, that this father is just so angry that he has to kill someone didn't fit anymore with, because I had gotten rid of, you know, it's fine if he's sending people to hell, then he's not going to have too much trouble killing his own son because he's sending his other children to hell too, you know? Uh, sure. Although, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I think the way you presented the penal substitute, View is what misrepresents it there. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But this is an interesting um, example, actually, of you know how does universalism interact with different areas of theology. 
And also, for a reason I'll say in a minute, but also it relates to your question of how will universalism within evangelicalism in the future, mm-hmm. it will go in different directions. And again, the yeah. 18th century is an interesting place to go here. Um, mm. There was an independent minister called James who was converted by George Whitfield, and he was one of Whitfield's preachers, but then he became, although he never used the term because it wasn't a biblical word, he became a universalist. The reason he became a universalist was precisely because he affirmed penal substitution, but he couldn't <laughs> understand how it could be that God, because the classical object of penal substitution at the time was uh-huh. that how is God being just by punishing an innocent person named right. Jesus, rather than punishing them who actually committed the crime? Right. And this really bugged him. Uh-huh. And he said, yeah, you know, this, this isn't just, and yet God has to be just and, and so on. And so sure. he decided that the only way to make this work was to have a very strong sense of Christ's identification with us in the Incarnation. So uh-huh. that Christ is so identified with us that when God, we're so united Christ. When God punishes us in Christ, he is actually punishing us. Mm. Um, and so it was for him, and then of course God has punished everybody's sins. Everybody's got to be saved. This is the way he right. reasoned. And so the reason, I'm not suggesting he's right, but the reason he's saying <laughs> is that you have a theologian, not a great theologian, by the way, but have a guy, a Christian <laughs> evangelical theologian is saying because I affirm penal substitution, uh-huh. the only way to make it work, he felt, was something like universalism. Universalism, interesting. And and yet, you know, many other, though not all others, universalists would say, well, we just don't like the penal substitution model. But but in fact, <laughs> yeah. universalism can work either with or not with penal substitution. So, you know, you could believe, and in fact, Jonathan, uh, John Owen, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which is classic mm-hmm. Puritan defense of limited atonement. Right. Again, I, think I haven't read it since I was 16, but one of the, <laughs> if my memory is right, uh, one of the arguments he, he gives in that is that if Christ, Christ can't have died for everyone, because if he did, they'd all be saved. Because everyone for whom Christ yes. dies gets saved. Right, exactly. Because, yeah. because of penal substitution, because of punishment, God will make you pay it twice. Uh-huh. So on that logic, if Christ died for everyone, they will be saved. Right. And so this is so this is why Calvinists will say the alternative yes. to limited atonement is universalism, and uh, uh-huh. because of the penal substitution. And so it's possible to be a universalist and affirm penal substitution. In fact, even to be a universalist precisely because you do. Yeah, or interesting. it's equally possible to be a universalist and reject penal substitution. Um, it's not the universalism that would settle that discussion. That, It'd be a whole bunch I, of other things. I really appreciate you clarifying that because that, that's a very interesting uh, way to look at it, and I, and I definitely see your point. Um, that, that has certainly enlightened me to uh, maybe I've actually connected the dots a, a little bit too strongly in my mind just because of my own journey and think that that has to – well, not necessarily. I mean, the, you know, penal substitution has problems. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, and, and there are ways of stating it that are less problematic. Um, and and there's definitely some insight, an mm-hmm. insight in the theology. Uh, mm-hmm. It becomes problematic when it's presented in 
simplistic ways, as it often is by preachers. Uh, mm-hmm. And it becomes problematic when it's presented as the central or only way of making sense of atonement. Right. Um, it, it simply doesn't have that status in historic Christianity. Sure. But but personally, you know, I want. I'm not. I would want to be open. To, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm still a little bit ambiguous and have been for decades on quite what I think. But I do. Yeah. Think that there is. A, be very cautious about being, you know, just rejecting it. Sure, sure. I respect that completely, and I, I think that's actually a great approach to the topic. And what one of the dangers, of course, in uh, a journey such as mine, where I make a major shift in elements of my theology, is the the assumption then that I was so wrong that there's no way possibly that that view could be right. <laughs> and uh, and I, you're, you're actually bringing a very nice balance to the topic for me, and I, I appreciate that uh, gentle pushback on your part, because I, I think it's necessary for us to, to constantly remind ourselves and to be reminded by others in the body that uh, just because we have moved away from a certain viewpoint doesn't necessarily invalidate that viewpoint, and uh, that there, we can see issues with it, but others may be able to still articulate it in a way that makes sense to them. Yes, and I wouldn't want people to reject universalism because they think, well, I'm a penal substitutionist. Right. If that, if that has to go for me to be universalist, I'm not going to be universalist. I'd yeah. rather say, well, actually, you can still be the both um, right. or not. I mean, yeah. there's a whole bunch of really quite complex and subtle theological issues to think through, and that's sure. my excuse for yeah. Well, I, I think you're right, and I, I think the one of the dangers in discussing this uh, in the way that we are, is that it really does um, boil a, a huge life journey down to a 45-minute discussion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly, as you said, it was it, it took you, you know, years of thinking through this. Uh, for me, it's been the same way. You know, the, right now I'm on a journey that's probably almost nine or ten years long of just rethinking a lot of things. And Mm -hmm. um, it's never a a clear cut, this is what I believe today. Um, There's always a certain amount of flux to it. There's always a certain amount of uncertainty. And uh, we have to allow that for everybody. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, we're all going back and forth between different things to believe. I think, well, what are the implications of this for Right. You know, for this part and this. And, and again, like I think I said earlier, one of the reasons that I think universalism is gaining more theological respect is precisely because it resonates so well with what we believe about creation. That, I mean, there's a yes. lovely bit in Paul at the end of Romans 11 where he says, uh-huh. for, for talking about God, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Right. And so here you have. From him, you've got creation, mm-hmm. through him, you know, through redemption and so uh-huh. on, and to him with eschatology, everything, everything, right. everything that God creates is from him, through him, and to him. And it's just, for me, it's one of my favorite Bible verses. It's not... I love that. It's not a verse, it's not one of the pretexts people realize about universalism, but for me, right. universalism has to be understood, the fitting ending to the story that scripture tells about creation and redemption. Yes. And and my suggestion in the book is that the traditional way of ending the story is discordant. It's yes. sort of a tune with the rest of the, the symphony, as it were. And you think, well, I just, yeah. 
and which is why so many Christian people over the centuries have sort of found it a difficult topic. I think yeah. not just because we're sensitive souls, but because it just seems to jar with yes. the way the story is going or the way Symphony is going. Yes. And that was kind of Rob Bell's, uh, one of his statements too, was what, what's the most fitting ending to this story? Mm-hmm. Is it is it that only a small fraction of humanity gets saved, or is it that love truly does win out in the end? And I think, uh, boy, we could, I'm looking at the time and realizing I have to bring this to a close, but uh, I, I wish we could talk for a few more hours about this. There, There is a sense in which um, oftentimes those of us on the universalist side are accused of putting God's love above other characteristics of God mm. in a and it's phrased in a negative way, you know, as if, well, he has to be holy, he has to be just. And I don't think you lose that in universalism. No. I, I, obviously, I don't think we do. Um, but it's it's a shame to me that on the other side of the coin, God's love seems to get the shaft because yeah, he loves absolutely. you for a certain period of time. And then if you haven't made a right decision in that period of time, it's almost as if he stops loving you. And if yeah. he, if we don't want to say that he stops loving you, we have to redefine love then to mean that he punishes you eternally because he loves you so much that he just has to punish you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, absolutely. I mean, I think one. I mean, I'm slightly frustrated and fed up when I hear over and over again. You know, well, yes, that God is love, yeah. right. but he's also just mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, oh my goodness, how could I have gotten that? Yeah, right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I missed that part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, well, God bless people, but he also punishes them. Yeah, I know that. I mean, see what and so what is supposed to be the weakness in universalism that we talk a lot about love and we forget about divine justice and wrath? It's just not true. And in fact, the problem is precisely the opposite one, which mm-hmm. is which we say every act of God, act of God's holy love, everything mm-hmm. that God says is holy, is loving, is just. So on, right. and that means that any account of the theology of hell has to be compatible simply with divine justice, mm-hmm. uh, but also with divine love. And right. I would say, because I'm a bit of a classical theist, those two boil down to the same thing uh-huh. in the end. In um, whereas on the theology of hell, you've got some things which are acts of divine love, with blessing those in heaven. But those in hell, that's divine justice and wrath. That's not love. I think, well, how do they just split the character of God up? Yes. Um, and that, that is a theologically problematic. And particularly sure. if you're a classical Christian, as not many people are now, but believe that it's simple. That, mm-hmm. that is to say, not composed of different parts. And right. so love and justice are totally distinct things. Mm-hmm. Um, on the classical of God, they wouldn't. And so, mm-hmm. you, but of course, the classical view might be wrong. I'm trying to think it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Robin, I need to bring this to a close, but real quickly uh, before we finish, and, and first of all, uh, let me say again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, this has been a delight for me, uh, and we've been trying to do this for, I think, over a year now, and I'm glad that we finally were able to work it into the schedule. Um, what, are you, what are you working on right now? Are you uh, exploring any other major areas that you're writing about, or uh, what, what's kind of hot on, on Robin Perry's plate right now? Right now... I'm supposed to be writing an article sending um, Plato against oh. 
against um, the popular theological criticism that is bad for Christianity. So uh-huh. I just thought, well, I'm going to argue that Plato is good for Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, no, because then I'm, I'm hoping to write a small popular book, a guide tour to the biblical cosmos. So uh-huh. heaven, hell, and shale, and so on. Right. And nice. exploring some of the theological issues that come when you try and hold this together with contemporary ways of understanding the cosmos. So the idea mm-hmm. is to write it as a sort of popular travel guide, but uh-huh. to use it to raise serious exegetical and uh, theological questions. Wow, that sounds fascinating, actually. I'd, I'd be curious to read that when it comes out. Um, and then uh, one final question for you. Are there any other pseudonyms that you're prepared to acknowledge at this point? <laughs> <laughs> there are no others. No, you're not going to tell us that you're actually C.S. Lewis? Uh, well, <laughs> well, how did you know that? <laughs> or, or are you going to tell us that Robin Perry is not actually your real name? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's all a pseudonym. I'm actually uh, going to change my... You heard it here on Beyond the Box, folks. <laughs> uh, Robin, thank you so much, and uh, many blessings to you, brother. Thank you for your time. Uh, I do hope that we get to do this again someday, and uh, I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to share uh, your thoughts, to expound upon uh, some of these sort of side issues about universalism and its impact on the church today. Uh, I think what you've done and what you are doing is uh, a huge blessing to the body. As I mentioned to you, I really appreciated the depth that you went into in your book instead of just kind of glossing over things and, and uh, jumping to conclusions. You've really taken the time to uh, articulate in a way that, uh, if I could say this without exaggerating, uh, probably better than anybody else I've read on the topic um, have gone into depth with it and helped me uh, connect some dots that I knew needed to be connected, but wasn't quite sure how to connect them. Uh, and so you've, you've definitely enriched my life uh, personally, and I believe uh, many lives in the body of Christ. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Robin Perry for joining us. Uh, boy, that was a fun interview. I apologize for some of the Skype connection issues. There are times where I know it was hard to make out exactly what Robin was saying, but hopefully listening between the lines, you're able to catch most of it. Um, but I want to thank Robin again for coming on the show and talking to us about this, uh, what I think is a very important issue. I think it's something to keep our eyes on and um, to pay attention to how it affects uh, theology on a grander scale and also just how the church itself deals with um, a growing acceptance of universal reconciliation. It's a a path that some of us have been on for a long time, uh, getting to that point. <laughs> um, I know for me it was a big, big step to finally let go of what I had always been taught about eternal conscious torment and to embrace uh, the idea of ultimate reconciliation. But it's something that to me seems now to jump off the pages of Scripture, verses that I had known for years that suddenly have a whole new meaning uh, when looked at in light of ultimate reconciliation. Don't have all the answers to it. Uh, there's still a lot of questions, obviously. Um, other viewpoints wouldn't be so uh, strongly held to if they didn't have scriptural support as well. As we've often talked about on the podcast, Rayburn and I have said before that uh, eternal conscious torment has its scriptural proof texts, ultimate reconciliation, annihilation, they all have their proof texts. But uh, just to encourage each of you to think through these issues 
Um, and not just take what somebody else tells you, but to really think it through yourself, look at scripture for yourself and see what uh, conclusion you come up with. But at any rate, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, thanks for listening. It's, uh, always fun to, to podcast and to reach out to you guys that are listening, guys and gals. And, um, you're more than welcome to reach back in communication with us. Um, beyondtheboxpodcast.com is our website. If you subscribe to us through iTunes or somewhere else, you may not know how to reach us on the web, but you can certainly go to that website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, and reach us there. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter to get notifications of when we post new episodes, you can follow us there at twitter.com slash btbpodcast. Or Facebook is a great place to interact. Uh, lots of good discussion taking place there. That's really the most active uh, place of interaction, I think, with regard to this podcast. And that's facebook.com slash beyond the box. Certainly welcome to come there and join in the discussion. Uh, we discuss things related to episodes and we discuss things that, that aren't even related to the episodes at all. Uh, anybody can start a topic of discussion and there's often quite lively interaction that takes place there. If you'd like to leave us an audio comment, uh, feel free to call us at area code 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. Or if you want to uh, go to our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, there's a widget in the right-hand sidebar that says Call Me. If you click that widget, it'll ask you for your phone number. Type in your phone number, say Call Me, and our voicemail will actually call you, and you can leave a message there. We don't answer that number directly. It goes straight to voicemail. But you're welcome to leave any kind of comment there that you want to. Um, and I will say that by leaving a comment there, you're giving us permission to play it on the air. But uh, unless you tell us otherwise. Um, thanks again for joining us. Looking forward to Ray being back with us next time. Uh, either he and I will be here together or he'll have another interview for you. But until then, y'all take care. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box.